Last week, we started at Ezekiel 43, and I talked about how the house of the Lord from verse 7 is where the throne of God is, but also where his feet are. And in that chapter, which we will close with this, but I want to give it at the front a little bit, it's where the glory of God returned to the temple. So my assignment today is to take us on a journey from when the glory comes, the glory departs, and the glory returns. Because, see, we're living in a day and a time which I mentioned this last week, the church has been devoid of the glory. That's a sad statement for me. But when the glory comes, no flesh can glory in itself. When the glory comes, his manifest presence is here. Signs, wonders, and miracles, transforming power of God comes in. Because the word of God tells us that if we behold his glory, we are changed from what? Glory to glory to glory. And... I don't know about you, but I find that most of the time we're having to work too hard at being transformed from glory to glory to glory compared to what the word says that behold his glory and you'll be changed. So I'm like, okay, God, we're needing more glory because we need to be changed. Anybody else needs to be changed? Anybody else needs to be transformed? Have your life really look like what God created who he created us to be. So we need the glory of God to come back in the house. So we can acknowledge the glory of God, not completely, but in a large measure has departed. And we've been seeing an incremental increase of the glory returning, but we're not where we need to be. The world out there that doesn't know Christ needs to see a people that are filled with glory. Because that will turn their hearts. So we're looking at pursuing the return of God's glory to the house of the Lord. And I want you to see this in two ways. First of all, I want you to see it. Glory of God returned to this house. Right here. More glory right here. More of him, less of us. But then I want us to take a look at... And there's many applications of the house. I mean, take this and apply glory to your house, your home. We want more glory. So that when people walk in, they sense a different atmosphere. They sense a peaceful atmosphere. They sense an atmosphere filled with love. And that's glory. But I also want us to really hear it from the perspective of God fill this house. And fill the church all over the nation, all over the nations of the world. Ezekiel 43, 4 says, And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. I want the glory of God to return. I want us to see the glory of God so moving in his house that what we read about in Acts is a foreshadowing of what we're walking in. Not something we're reaching toward, but the glory so filling this house that if possible, the early church would look at us and go, oh, I wish I was alive with them. 
Why not? Why not? That was a church in infancy. So why should the church in infancy outshine the church that's 2,000 years old? Come on, we should be going from glory to glory. So let's look at the glory in the house of the Lord. I'm going to take us back to 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And you'll remember Solomon has just built the temple. Everything is in place. And then in verse 11, it says, And when the priest came forth from the holy place, for all the priests who were present had sanctified themselves without regard to division. What a line. Not competitive, not considering one part better than another part, not, not all the stuff that we see in culture today. But they came together without regard to division. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Haman, Jeduthun, and all their sons and kinsmen, clothed in fine linen, linen, speaking of righteousness, with cymbals, harps, and lyres, standing east of the altar, and with them 120 priests blowing trumpets. Do you notice the number? What happened at Acts 2? 120 in one accord without regard to division. Come on. It doesn't take masses. It takes a company of people coming together without regard to division to worship and pray and praise the Lord. And then let's see what happens. Verse 13. In unison, when the trumpeters and the singers were to make themselves heard with one voice, say one voice, to praise and glorify the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice, accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments and music, and when they praised the Lord, saying, He is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Then the house... The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. I don't know about you, but if then, why not now? If then, why not now? Why should we have to look back and go, well, I wish I had been there. No, do it again right here. See, God wants to bring his glory. He's looking for a people that will come together without regard to, to division and to lift up their sound of praise, release their praise. See, it's when they, when they, when they, then God. See, sometimes we're looking for God to do when we haven't done our when they. We're just wanting God to do it. And he's going, wait a minute. I respond to you. He's always looking for the yous who will do what he's commanded so that he can come. And so that he will come. Then Solomon, at the dedication, prays this in 2 Chronicles 6. Now, I really encourage you to go and camp out in 2 Chronicles 5, 6, and seven for a while. There's so much in here, and I'm scratching the surface. 
In verse 40, it says, Now, O oh my God, I pray that your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Now, therefore, arise, O oh Lord God, to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priest, O oh Lord God, be clothed with salvation and let your godly ones rejoice in what is good. O oh Lord God, do not turn your face away. Turn away the face of your anointed. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. Remember your loving kindness to your servant David. We can say, Lord, remember. Remember. Remember what you have done before. Remember the covenant promises you've made. Remember what your heart's desire is. Remember that your intention is to reveal your glory. That according to Habakkuk, that the glory of the Lord will cover the seas, cover the world, cover the earth. Cover it all as the waters cover the seas. Can you see it? See, the glory's there. The problem is we don't see it. Because in Habakkuk says that we would see. Not just that the glory would be there, but that we would see it. That the knowledge of the glory would be there. We need that. We need the eyes of the Lord attentive to his house. We need to have... His eyes searching to and fro throughout all of the earth to see those who are faithful toward him. Let him find us to be a place right here, my own heart, and then us. Where he would say, oh, I found a people. I found a people. Yet their heart is steadfast, immovable, always abounding in my grace. A people that are set on a pilgrimage to know me and to make me known. And then in, verse, in chapter 7 of 2 Chronicles, in verses 1 through, C, 3, 1 through 3, it says, Now when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Let's let that sink in. The priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. All the sons of Israel, seeing the fire come down and the glory of the Lord upon the house, bowed down on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped. And gave praise to the Lord saying, truly he is good. Truly his loving kindness is everlasting. What would happen in a community if God's people and God's house was so filled with glory that it was visible beyond us? What would happen if the glory of God was so strong, let's say in this house, but I'll, I pray it for every church in the community and out beyond. It's not just about us. This is about God's house being filled with glory. What if the glory was so strong that people driving down the road go, I've just got to go in there. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that city gate thing is. I just, I've just got to go in there. Why not? 
Why not? See, we can do all of the efforts of promoting and getting our name out and all that kind of stuff. And all of that is good. But the better option, quite honestly, is the glory being so strong that people are drawn like a magnet because they will encounter him, not us. Amen. Not us, him. See, worshiping and honoring the Lord without regard to division creates an atmosphere for glory to fill the house. Have you ever been in a prayer meeting or a worship gathering or in a place where everybody, it's like everybody ends up in one accord? And then suddenly it's like nothing else matters. It's just whatever he wants. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for people that are giving up of our own way, of our own perspectives, our own desires, our own will, our own pet doctrines. That got silent. Boop. Our own pet songs. I mean, I, I, I know people, and I had somebody several weeks ago, not anybody from around here, but in another part of the country, like, I'm going back to church, but I just, I just can't stand the worship. I can't stand the music. I said, that's because it's not what you grew up on. Because they couldn't get out of their preference. I said, give it a shot. Stretch out beyond what you are accustomed to, come into worship. Don't worry about if it's your favorite song or not. And just begin to worship. God will take you in. And see, the deal is this works in every direction. I remember going to a, um, actually it was a piano senior recital years ago. This was like probably 30 years ago or more. And they were playing all classical music. And the whole time it's going on, God is having me worship. Because I was hearing the sounds of heaven in the worship. So it wasn't just about it being a contemporary issue. It was about I heard worship in it. Why? Because my heart was tuned to worship. I wasn't worried about it being my style or my whatever. It was about, God, you're worthy. I hear the sound of glory in Beethoven. I hear the sound of glory in Bach. It was amazing. So if we can get out of our personal preferences, because that's part of our division issue. That's what divides us, is personal preference. And God's like, I'm looking for people who, without regard to division, will gather their hearts to worship me in one accord. I'll show up. And we want him to show up. But we need to take a look at what causes God to depart. What causes? He never leaves us nor forsakes us. But you know, there's a difference between him being with us and his glory being here. Right? So God's glory departed when you go into Ezekiel. And basically, the glory departing is the response of a holy God to the grievous acts of his people. 
Because a holy God cannot cohabitate with evil. He can't do it. And I felt the Lord say this to me this week. He said, to see the return of glory, you must first understand the reason glory departed. How can you fix what you don't know how it got broken? I mean, that applies in most every area of life, right? Ezekiel 8, this whole passage through the Ezekiel 8, 9, and 10 is some of the most grievous portion of scripture that you can find, in my opinion. It, every time I read it, my heart just weighs down. Ezekiel 8, 3 and 4. He stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head. This was the Spirit of God reaching down to Ezekiel. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. Are you getting this? In the inner court of the temple of God, they had erected an idol of jealousy. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there like the appearance which I had seen in the plain. Verse 5. Then he said to me, Son of man, raise your eyes now toward the north. So I raised my eyes toward the north, and behold, to the north of the altar gate was this idol of jealousy at the entrance. And he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations which the house of Israel are committing here, so that I would be far from my sanctuary, but yet you will see greater abominations. Verse 7. Then he brought me to the entrance of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, now dig through the wall. So I dug through the wall, and behold, an entrance. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing there. This, just to clarify, this is inside the house of the Lord, that they're committing the abominations. So I entered and looked, and behold, every form of creeping things and beasts and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel. This isn't the idols of the pagan nations. These are the idols of the house of Israel. Were carved on the wall all around. Verse 11. Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel and Jehozniah, the son of Shaphan, standing among them, each man with his censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of incense rising. Then he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark, each man in the room of his carved images? For they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken us and forsaken the land. And he said to me, yet you will see still greater abominations which they are committing. 
Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Now, Tammuz was a, a, a goddess of sexual immorality. Just putting that in context. And he said to me, do you see this son of man? Yet you will st see still greater abominations than these. I mean, I get to this point. I'm going, God, how much worse can it get? Then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house and behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. They had given themselves into sun worship. Verse 17, and he said to me, do you see this son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they have committed here, that they have filled the land with violence and provoked me repeatedly? For behold, they are putting the twig to their nose. Therefore, I indeed will deal with wrath. My eye will have no pity, nor will I spare. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not listen to them. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. See, a lot of times we take a look at why glory departs and we look at at, at sin issues, and all of these are sin issues, but these are such grievous, idolatrous violation of every aspect of God's command. And it's not just by the people of the house, it's by the leadership, it's by the elders, it's defilement in every arena you can imagine. They've got their idolatry. They've got their idols placed in and carved into the walls. And a lot of times in American Christianity, we don't recognize idolatry when it's straight in our face. Because we don't have a little image over here that we're bowing to. But the deal is, if you've got something that exalts itself above the Lord in your life, it is an idol. And we don't like to hear that because we like what we like. But when those things take a priority over the Lord and over the holiness of worshiping God in the fear of the Lord, then those are idols. If our opinions take a first seat, guess what? What is that? It's an idol. So inside the house of the Lord, there's idolatry. Can I just propose to us that the modern church is filled with idolatry? The fear of the Lord has departed. We've allowed everything in that is taking our attention rather than the Lord. And if something else comes along that we don't want to go and worship, we just go do whatever. It's an issue of idolatry. It's an issue of the heart. But then you begin to see not just the idolatry. You begin to see the immorality. 
you see the, the Tammuz would have re referenced temple prostitutes. And unfortunately, in this city, that's been a real deal. Over the headlines in the paper in certain years. See, you can't have the glory of God and have temple prostitution going on at the same time. And leadership that does evil behind a wall. Another place further in Ezekiel 43, it talks about part of the sin was that they put their threshold against God's threshold, their doorpost against God's doorpost, and a wall between them. What do you think it is that Ezekiel bore a hole through? The wall that they had established between they had established a wall and said, as long as I do it on this side, it's okay. I just can't do it over here. But eventually, they went in and they were doing it in the temple of the Lord. Because, see, when you start allowing wickedness to come right up next to you, well, I, I can just keep it in this box over here and I'm all good. If you keep doing evil over here, eventually that thing spills over into every part of your life because it cannot stay contained because the devil always wants more. And so eventually you end up seeing the whole house defiled. And God says, when I see the house defiled and you're projecting that you're the holy priest of God and over here you're doing abominations, guess what? I'm withdrawing my glory. When you have form, a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, that's idolatry. That's evil. That is looking good but rotting on the inside. Glory cannot abide there. So gross defilement is what we were seeing. Gross defilement of the house of the Lord. Idolatry. False worship. Immorality. Temple prostitution. Gross irreverence. Think about this. The twig to the nose is mockery and irreverence. God doesn't see, God doesn't care, we can just do, he's forsaken us anyway, we can just do whatever we want. I'm going to tell you, God sees. God knows. And there always comes a time when there is a reckoning for what we have presumed God didn't see. And my cry for us is that we would bow to the convicting power of Holy Spirit and not push it away. That every time Holy Spirit begins to say, mm, this really isn't the way I want you to behave. This really isn't the attitude I want you to carry. Let him have his way. Because the longer you don't let him have his way, what happens? Your heart grows harder and harder and you're not responsive anymore. And eventually you don't even know he's missing. And it is particularly defiling when it's among leadership. It's probably the thing that grieves me the most, even in this city, is how much defiled leadership we've had. And it breaks my heart. 
because what I know is that the majority didn't start out with a heart to defile. But busyness, hurts, wounds, disappointments, all kinds of things. Losing the place of first love, the heart grows harder and unresponsive to the point that then you're walking off and you don't even realize you're walking off. Because, see, the, the devil never starts with this going, oh, you're walking the straight and narrow, turn over here. He never starts with that kind of a radical departure. It's always this little bit. But if you keep following this little bit, pretty soon you're way off course. And so I feel like part of what God's saying today for all of us is check the plumb line. Are you aligning with me or are you off course? And see, the deal is God always wants us back on course. This sounds pretty hard right now because glory departed. And, I, you know, if glory departs, what hope do you have? And yet God always gives us a way. So consider these thoughts this morning. When you're taken into captivity as a result of departing from the way of the Lord, cry out for help. Cry out to God. Save me, O God. You go into Exodus 3, 7 through 9. It's the story of the Israelites they were in captivity. They were having to make more bricks with less straw. They were being oppressed. They were being pressed, pressed, pressed. And it got so bad because here's what happens when you go into captivity. The weightiness of that captivity will get to you. But the question is, what are you going to do? Don't just excuse it. Well, this is just life. Life's just hard. No! If there's a constant oppression against you, say, God, how did I get in this mess? Help me, God. See, the Israelites began to cry out to God and, and say, deliver us. We need some cry of deliverance. We need a cry of deliverance. And then you look at in Judges 6, and it's a story of Gideon. And they've been under the oppression of the Midianites. And... The, you know, they were having to thresh their wheat in the wine press. Do you know you don't thresh wheat in a wine press? You thresh wheat on a threshing floor, but a threshing floor would have been out in the open so the wind could take the chaff and blow it away. But they were hiding because they were afraid. And yet God comes to Gideon and says, Rise up, mighty man of valor, because the, the cry of the people had arisen out of their oppression. Can I propose to us that while we're not anywhere near the oppression that other nations are, would it not be a good idea if we began to cry out now? So we don't go into the oppression that is encroaching? Then we go, when your faith... Um, I miss. I skipped one. I'm sorry, Beverly, back there. When wars, famine, and pestilence come, repent and turn from your wicked ways. 
See, we need to be doing some turning right now. Because the wars are out there. The pestilence has been out there. There's places in the world that are struggling with famine. We need to turn from our wicked ways. Second Chronicles 6, 22 and 29 and 7, 12 through 22. Solomon lays it out. When these things come, then turn. If my people... It's not about the world to turn. It's about us turning. See, a lot of times we'll look out at the world and we'll see all the sin they're doing. And God's like, I, I can handle them. I'm looking at you. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal the land. I'll forgive their sins. See, he's looking for us. He's not looking for the world, he's looking for us. And when we're facing judgment for disobedience, choose God's severity over the enemy's vengeance. Do you remember the story of David? And he's counted the people in a census after God said, don't do this. And the Lord he, through a prophet, gives him an option. You can fall in the hands of the enemy or you can fall into the hands of the angel of the Lord. And David said this. He said, let me fall into the hand of the Lord for his mercies are very great. See, when God brings his conviction to us, when he says, I am not tolerating this anymore. Anybody else have him talk to you that way? Then I'm like, okay, God, do what you got to do. Correct me, discipline me, because he loves and chastens those whom he loves. That's what he does. So we need to be quick to allow the Lord to bring us into an alignment with his ways. And then when we're confronted with the consequences of sin... Have any of you ever experienced the consequences of sin? It's just like you do something and the natural consequence just plays itself out. And then you want to blame somebody, but the reality is you know, wait a minute, I set this in motion by my own choices. Cry out for mercy. There's so many Psalms where David would find himself in a mess and he had made choices, I mean, for goodness sakes, the man seduced Bathsheba. And then he lost, you know, it, he just went through so much. But at those points where he came to was, God, have mercy on my soul. Do not hold this against me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Cleanse me and I will be cleansed. See, when God removes his glory, it is a serious matter of judgment Therefore, seek diligently to cleanse, purify, and sanctify the house. Then rebuild according to the blueprint of heaven. See, that applies for us individually. When we know that, that the conviction and the rebuke of the Lord is over us, then quickly return Quickly say, God, cleanse my house. Show me where the defilement is. 
Lead me in a way of repentance. Be quick to repent. Ask him to pull out all the idolatry, all of the generational curses, all of the mindsets, belief systems, all of those things that take us into a captivity where we are not enjoying the fullness of the abundant life. Because, you know, sometimes, folks, we forget that the standard of us looking at our lives, whether we are flourishing or not, is are we living in the abundant life? Anything less than the abundance that God purchased for us through Christ, I'm looking and saying, okay, what else needs to be adjusted here? Because there's no problem with God. You know that, right? He has all the abundance that's possible. So if I'm not living in that abundance, then I'm saying, what's going on here that's keeping me out of the abundance? And then once you've cleansed, say, Lord, help me to rebuild. Part of our pursuit here is, is God, help us to rebuild your house the way you want it to be. To rebuild the house so that, yes, we're family. Yes, we're fellowship. Yes, we're a house of worship. But, folks, we're a house of prayer. Because that's the way God intended it to be. It wasn't that it was a house of preaching. It wasn't that it was a house even of worship. Come on. It was a house of prayer. But, see, we've got to shift the way we see prayer because we've seen prayer primarily as a poor, weak people asking God to do something. And he's saying, wait a minute, I did my part, now you do yours. You come into, you're seated in heavenly places, you get my counsel, you begin to declare and decree and speak forth what I've had. So what I'm saying in earth is echoing, what I'm saying in heaven is echoing on the earth and the angels of heaven and the army on the earth, the ecclesia, are moving together to push back darkness. See, we're in a restoration because we've been in a less than what God intended state. We've been stat satisfied with status quo mediocrity. And a cultural expression of church, the house of the Lord, that God says, wait a minute, what is that? That's not what I intended. I intended for my house to be filled with glory. I intend for my house to be filled with my government. To bring my kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. To be a people who display the wonders of who I am. In power, in might, in glory. See, when glory returns, I want us to take a look at Ezekiel 43. For a minute. I'm just going to read a few verses. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. I don't know about you, but that makes me go, come on, God. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. Verses 7. Actually, I think this is like 11 and 12, not 7 and 12. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne 
and the place of the soles of my feet where I dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And then that was verse 7. Then it goes on down in the very last verse of this section of the scriptures. In verse 12 it says, This is the law of the house. Its entire region on top of the mountain all around shall be what? Most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. See, the law of the house is that where we are, when the glory fills, everything around becomes holy. What does holy mean? It's not just that we're prim proper and all of that kind of stuff. It is set apart, devoted, consecrated unto God's purposes. So wherever you are, Wherever your family is, everything surrounding is holy. Your business is holy. Your family is holy. What if we began viewing our lives at holy and everything around us is holy? This is the law of the temple because do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So, if you're holy, consecrated, like we talked about last week, not consecrated away from sin, but consecrated unto God, and you've been made holy by the blood of the Lamb, then everything around you and everything you touch is set apart. It's consecrated, it's holy. And then you become watchman over your house that you let nothing defiling come in. See, we, there's a phrase, and we'll probably get into this in a week or so, about the keeper of the threshold, the watchman of the threshold. I had not seen that phrase before, and Ann Tate dropped it into me late yesterday, and I'm like, oh my goodness. We have to watch over what is coming across our threshold. We have to watch what is coming in. Watch over what you allow in through your eyes, through your ears, in through your heart. Watch what you're allowing to encroach upon you in your soul. Watch what you're allowing to come into your home. That's not a matter of being legalistic. It's just, is this defiling my home? Because it's the place where we're to host the glory. Around this place, God, I want it to be so holy when people walk in, they encounter your glory. You can go other places and find greater, probably greater worship, greater preaching. But see, that's not my goal. My goal is, will you encounter the glory of God when you walk in? When you encounter the love of God, the loving kindness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God. See, God is always, always, always looking for a moment of time when he is justified to return his glory to his house. Now, what do I mean that he is justified? That he has found a people 
who have yielded and surrendered to him in such a way that he says, ah, I see a pure people that their heart is hungry for me. I see a people and they're hungry. They're crying out for me. They're turning from their wicked ways and they're saying, God, above all else, I want you. When he hears that sound, he goes, aha, right there. He'll meet you in your prayer closet. He'll meet you in your car. He'll meet you where you are. He'll meet us here because we're positioning our hearts to say, God, above all else, I'm hungry for your glory. And I want everything surrounded the house to be holy. I want the holiness of God, the glory of God to so fill the house that out on the street and down toward Peach Street Corners and over toward Norcross and out toward Duluth and pushing down into Atlanta and every place that he's given us an assignment to touch that is touched because of the glory. So I want you to stand with me. This was not a uh, lightweight kind of message. But I'm telling you, I feel the passion of God. Wanting a people. Yearning for a people. Who say, God, I've tried it my way. I mean, how many of us haven't tried living life our own way? It doesn't work real well. To say, here am I, Lord. Here am I. More than my next breath, I want your glory. More than the next program or the, the next whatever. Whatever it takes, God. We are desperate for your glory. Our families are desperate for your glory. Our lives are desperate for your glory. Our community is desperate for your glory. Even while we've been here today, Lord, a news flash popped open on my iPad of another murder in the county next to us. We need your glory. We need your glory, God. We read the headlines, God, and we see situations and reports of spies in the White House and in the Pentagon. We read and see the news reports of what's going on in Israel and in Gaza. And without you, we have no hope. But we put our hope in you, God. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to cleanse us out. Show us what we need to get rid of in the very core of our being. Where we've allowed defilement in. Where we've allowed idolatry in. Where we've allowed things that should not even be mentioned among the people of God. Lord, we're inviting you to cause the 
flashlight of your glory. Holy Spirit, convict us. Root out of us everything that keeps us from walking in the fullness of who you created us to be. And Lord, then by your Holy Spirit, teach us to walk in your ways, to rebuild our lives according to your pattern. Not ours, not the culture, not the world's way, but God, according to your pattern. That we would build a house by your grace that is fit for a king. That your throne would be in the midst of us and your feet standing in the middle. Your rulership and your dominion. That the world may see and know that there is but one God who rules in heaven who sent forth his only son, Jesus, that we might live eternally now and forever. That we might be the people you called us to be. That every purpose and destiny that you ordained for us, God, that we would be so aligned with your heart so aligned with your will and your ways that you would be pleased to pour out your glory that the world may know that you are our God. Lord, I thank you that you're doing in us and among us what only you could do. And we thank you in advance for the transforming power of your glory in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I bless you all. Have a wonderful afternoon. What am I doing? You're looking at me for something. Oh. Oh, offering. Oh, they're, they're telling me to do offering. Most of you gave earlier. You see how un, unprofessional we can be around here? It's all good. But um, we do encourage you to give so in to what God is saying to your heart that he may have a place in you to continue to do the work he's called you to do. I bless you, honored you're here, love on somebody, and we will see you Tuesday night and next weekend. <laughs>